good morning or good afternoon or good evening or whatever time it is that you may be watching this and worshiping along with me. I'm just excited that technology gives us the opportunity to connect our hearts in worship together. So let's sing. It's a new horizon, and I'm set on you. 
Crossview Church, who would have thought a week ago that we'd be where we are here today? Obviously, our world has changed, and uh, this coronavirus pandemic has affected all of us, but I'm thankful that God is in control, God was not surprised, and God still is ruler over all, and he's guiding and leading, and he will give us peace. I'm also thankful for the fact that we have the gift of technology that allows me to still continue to give you God's word and help you grow uh, remotely uh, through the the midst of this uh, pandemic and what faces us. And so I'm thankful for that gift. I remember when I began my ministry and God called me to preach his word. And I remember early on being caught up about numbers of who would show up and what's going to be there. And it felt like if there's a lot of people, it was good. If there wasn't, it was bad. And um, the Lord took me through that process and really taught me that uh, it doesn't matter whether there's a thousand people listening to God's word or just one. You just be faithful, God said to me, and preach my word. And that was something that he kind of laid in me from the beginning. And here we are in the sanctuary across from your church, and it's just me and Ryan. So I am here to uh, preach God's word here to me and Ryan, but also, Lord willing, to you and your family remotely. And I'm 
praying that God would use this and he'd continue to use it to help us in the time that we find ourselves. So with that, I'm going to pray for all of us in the midst of this, and then we will uh, hear from God's word. Father in heaven, I thank you that nothing surprises you. I thank you that in a crazy, crazy world, you rule and you reign and you are still on your throne. God, I pray wherever our hearts find us in this, whether uh, we're afraid, whether we are upset and angry and feel this is blown out of proportion, whether we uh, are nervous for loved ones, whether we are oversaturated with the panic, no matter where our hearts find us or whether we're dealing with things in life where the coronavirus doesn't even compare to the pain of other things, I thank you that you are God and you can meet us right where we're at. And so I ask that you would do that through this passage that we're going to look at today. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you as you truly are. I pray that you would help us to yield our lives and our wills to you and know you in a deeper, truer way. And I ask now that you would open our eyes to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, you've heard it said that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. That if I'm going to believe it, I must see it. Seeing is believing. But in Christianity, the opposite is actually true. Believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the rising of the sun. I believe it not because I can see it, but when I see it, I can see everything else. That's worth saying again. I believe in Christianity like I believe in the rising of the sun. I believe it not because I can see it, but when I see it, I can see everything else. That's Christianity. That's following Jesus. When we follow Jesus and he becomes center of our lives, he gives light to everything else in our world. He gives light to everything else in our life. Whether it's struggles we have at home, whether it's struggles in relationships, whether it's struggles financially, whether it is a coronavirus pandemic, we view life through the lens of Jesus Christ, and that's Christianity. And when we do that, we find our peace. When we do that, we move into this place where we become the people God intended us to be. We become the people aligned with the will and the ways of God. And so this morning, I'm excited to continue our series called Amazed, where we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to see us, Jesus establishing again his kingdom on earth. And as he does that, and we embrace that, we become the people God intended us to be. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up now to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the majority of of chapter 2, well, in fact, all of it, and a little bit of chapter 3, but I encourage you to open to Mark chapter 2, and in, we're going to see a continuation where Pastor Chris left off last week of Jesus establishing his kingdom. In these beginning uh, chapters in Mark, 
Jesus is establishing who he is. He's establishing his kingdom authority so that we understand that he is God. We are seeing the arrival of the king. And in chapter 1, Jesus was very clear and straightforward. He said, I didn't come out of nowhere. I didn't come uh, as a surprise. The Old Testament prophets talked about me for years and years and years that, were, that I was going to come, and I came. He also said, I didn't come to tell you all that you want to hear. I didn't come to tell you that all the things you think about are right and true and to make you feel comfortable with where you're at. I came to tell you to repent, to turn. I came to tell you that your natural inclinations, your natural desires are sinful at best and that to have a new life, you need to turn, to repent, to turn from your ways and turn to God. And in doing that, you will find new life. You will find the life that I intended you to live because when you repent and you believe and you receive the gospel, you receive My life, it's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction. And when Jesus preached that message, many, many believed and they turned and they found life. And throughout the ages, we see that many have come to know Jesus through this gospel message. We see that even at Crossview Church today. Many are coming and turning and and learning and seeing that this Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So just as the sun gives light to the day, Jesus is here in the beginning of Mark, rising and giving light to the world. He's giving light to the world, and he's giving light to our lives. And like a movie, today we see five scenes of this king on the rise. We see five scenes rolling out like a motion picture of this king on the rise. And what we're going to see is that as he rises, we see who he is and we realize we need him. Not only do we need him, there's going to be a desire, I pray, bubbling up in our heart that says we want him and we embrace him and make him ruler of our life. God is telling his people in these opening verses we're going to look at is your king is now here your king is now here so let's look at scene number one scene number one says the king is God mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 let's read that and look at that together says when he entered Capernaum again after some days it was reported that he was at home So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking. 
that they were thinking like this and within themselves. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus demonstrates his divine authority and doing so causes the opposition to strike back. This is so much more about a physical healing. We are amazed, we are astounded. If we were there, we would be astounded like the people that here comes this paralytic lowered out of nowhere from the ceiling. Jesus heals him, he walks, he's no longer paralyzed. We would freak out by that. However, even though that is wild enough, this story is so much more about a physical healing. It's so much more because The physical healing confirms that Jesus has the authority on behalf of God to forgive sins. The healing would have blown him away. The healing left everybody astounded. But what left them more astounded was that it declared that the king is God. The king is God. Forgiveness was something that happened in heaven Now it is happening right before their eyes. Jesus used the healing to prove that he had the authority to forgive sins. The first thing Jesus says to this paralytic man, this man who is paralyzed, the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he uses the moment of healing to let that be the exclamation point, the underlining factor that he has the ability, the authority from God to forgive sin. The religious rulers were not pleased with Jesus declaring himself the divine sin forgiver. It caused them angst. They said this was blasphemy, was what they called it. And we're going to see many weeks later in Mark chapter 14, verse 14, one of the grounds that they used against Jesus to send him to the cross was blasphemy. That was one of the charges, and this was one of the first places they see that because they're blinded in their eyes and they don't realize who it is that's before them. And they cause them to question. Verses 6 to 7 says, But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, they had the right concept. They knew that only God could forgive sins, but what they missed was God was in their midst right before them. This was God. The king is God. Jesus is doing things reserved for God alone, and a clash occurs, and they don't know what to do. 
Jesus is the full representation of God on earth. It says in Colossians 2 that he is the fullness of deity in bodily form. All that is God is in Jesus Christ. In Colossians it says he is the image of the invisible God. We want to know what God looks like and what he's like. We look at the life of Jesus Christ and the scribes missed it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. In the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, look at what Jesus would do, how he would behave, how he would act, and don't miss it. Scene one tells us the king is God. Scene number two today says the king makes sinful hearts clean. The king makes sinful hearts clean. Let's read on in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What a powerful statement from God in flesh in a sinful, broken world. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinner. Jesus places every human being in that category. He places every human being in the category of sinners who are in need of forgiveness. He calls us out and he says, you are sinners. And though you may not see it, though you may not realize it, you stand in need of forgiveness from a holy God. He calls, it out, calls out the truth. But also he calls us to life. Because he knows that the only way we have true eternal life, the only way we have true life is to be right with God. And so he calls us to that forgiveness because he is the king that makes sinful hearts clean. And all of a sudden, the tax collector is invited to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, tax collectors in this day were as low and sinful as you can get. If you think about the most heinous sinful person that you may know in your world and the places you interact, multiply that negatively by a factor of 10 and you get a tax collector. They were the lowest of low. There was a clear line between a tax collector and regular humanity. Regular humanity was seen as better than this lowly, sinful tax collector. People would say, yeah, I'm kind of bad at things I do, but at least I'm not a tax collector. It was like seen as the low of low. Jesus comes and he levels the planing field. 
Jesus comes and says, no, you are all human beings created by God, fallen from the time of the Garden of Eden and in need of forgiveness from a holy God. He levels the playing field. And you see that so clearly in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many, look at that word, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, look at that word again, many who were following him. You have many tax collectors and sinners, and you have many who are following. This is a picture of Jesus' kingdom objective to take sinners and make them disciples. And what's happening here is really crazy. We see a lot of amazing things. The first thing we see is there's something about Jesus where sinners felt comfortable in his presence. There was something about Jesus that made put sinners at ease. Even though they were in need of forgiveness from a holy God, Jesus was able to reach out to them and be with them, and they were compelled by who he was to the point where they were able to recline. They were able to let down the guards of their heart around this Jesus. They knew where they stood with him. They knew they were sinners. They knew that they were in need and that they stood opposed to a holy God. But even in the midst of that, they felt comfortable in the presence of Jesus. Do sinners in your world feel comfortable in your presence? Do they feel like you love them? Do they feel like you care about them regardless of their behavior? See, that's what Jesus did here. And it brought down the guards from them to hear the truth. And what's amazing is if you look at the wording here, disciple and sinner are made to look similar because sinners can now become disciples because the king makes sinful hearts clean. Because Jesus is here and he can make sinful hearts clean. He is the answer to our broken sinful lives. And let me say he is the only answer to our broken sinful lives. And he's declaring that he is here. He's calling sinners to a new life. And when this takes root, you have a disciple. And know what's amazing? is the first time the word disciple is used in the Bible, is right here in verse 15. And what a place for God to unveil that word in the midst of sinners and tax collectors being called out to follow Jesus Christ. What a powerful thing. What an amazing time to unveil the picture of a disciple. Interwoven with the sinners and tax collectors is this hope of new life. This hope that you can be somebody that you never thought you can be because God can come into your heart and transform you into a follower of Jesus Christ and give you new life. You see, what I love about Jesus is the way to God is not external affecting the internal, but it's internal affecting the external. It's a work in the heart that affects who you are. See, we're going to find out here as this movie continues that the scribes and the Pharisees were obsessed with the external, 
looking like I'm holy, looking like God loves me. I'm going to put on this fake Christian act to show people how holy and pious I am. But inside, they were sinners, opposed, rebellion to God, opposed and rebellious to God. But Jesus flips it on its ear and says, no, 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 no. It's not about external affecting the internal. It's about the internal. And when it's the internal, then it's real. And the internal affects the external. Disciples are sinners who have responded to the call of the king. Disciples are sinners who have responded to the call of the king. In Jesus' kingdom, everyone is equal before God. All sinners are in need of grace. And this created a problem for the religious leaders. And Jesus' response to them in verse 17 is incredible. He says it's the mission of the doctor to heal the sick. It's the mission of the divine healer to restore those who are broken. It's the mission of the divine healer to restore sinners to wholeness, to bring those who are dead to life, to bring them into the kingdom of God. And don't miss this, but what he's saying here and what we see here is that the self-proclaimed holy ones or self-proclaimed healthy ones, they miss out on the cure. They miss out on the remission of the disease of sin. They miss out on the blessings and the peace of the kingdom of God. See, this is a good lesson for us because this tells us that religious pride keeps you away from grace and mercy and forgiveness that God gives us. When you stiff arm God be with your religious pride, it affects your internal heart. And we see that as clear as day in these scribes and Pharisees. The kingdom of God is about God meeting sinful, broken people where they are and giving them new life. Don't stiff arm that with a religious pride. Don't stiff arm that by thinking that you don't need that. Don't stiff arm that by thinking that you have been doing this Christianity thing for years and you got it all down. That religious pride will stiff arm you from continuing in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of God. See, we have to keep our hearts humble and broken and soft before this God. It's the key to being a disciple. It's a key to following him. There's another scene in the movie, and that's scene number three. Scene three tells us that the king changes lives. The king changes lives. Have you ever heard of the phrase, well, that's not how we do it. That's not how things are done here. Jesus is changing that when it comes to what it means to relate to God. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and, the worst, and a worse tear is made. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Scene number three tells us the king changes lives. In this scene, we see a change of lifestyle, one that abandons the old religious patterns of how a person related to God and adapts the new way, the new directive, the new kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring in how to relate to God. And a clash is happening between the old religious rules and lifestyle of how one related to God and the new way that Jesus is bringing. And as you can imagine, the Jesus way is better. It's important to share that those who are raising the issue, these scribes, they're not fighting for something biblical. An Old Testament law was not broken here in the fasting. This whole question of fasting, it wasn't something that, was, that the disciples of Jesus were bound to do um, by Old Testament law. What's happening here is that they were, the uh, Pharisees were mad that the disciples were not obeying the extra-biblical practices of a Jewish clique. You see, the Pharisees would take the law of the Old Testament, the Torah, and they would add to it their own rules so that you would, couldn't break their own rules. It was almost like a barrier that would protect you from breaking the law, but those extra-biblical rules held people in bondage. And what Jesus is coming against isn't the law, isn't the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills that and is supportive of that. What he's breaking apart is their way of trying to obey God and relate to God is in following these extra rules they set up. See, where Jesus is going with this is the way you relate to God isn't to follow a set of rules. The way you relate to God is you follow a person that's me. And that's the table he's laying here. The Pharisees made their own extra-biblical laws to keep people from breaking the law. And it sounds like a good idea, but it's absolutely crazy. And it turns people not into what you would think, people who obey God, but it turns people into prideful, arrogant people who say, look at how great I am at keeping all the rules. When people ask you a question... There's either a genuine interest, like they really need information, or they're trying to trap you. The religious rulers were always trying to trap Jesus. The questions they had were always ones of trying to fill this trap. And this is really crazy because what we see coming out here, and we're going to see this as we journey through the book of Mark, is that this is the religious ruler's approach. They use the word of God in an attempt to disprove the work and the identity of the Son of God. They're trying to use the word of God in an attempt to disprove the work and the identity of the Son of God. And this still happens today. Oh, Mr. So-and-so, man, does he know his Bible? He knows his Bible inside and out. He has it all down. He can tell you verses, and he has all the numbers, and he knows exactly where it goes. He knows it backwards and forwards. But what is the goal? Is it simply to have Bible knowledge for the sake of Bible knowledge? Or is the goal to become like Jesus? 
I've said this before. You can show me a person who can show you every book of the Bible, quote all these verses, know all the uh, scriptures inside and out, and if you name a verse, they'll tell you the exact reference, and they know all the Bible through and through, but it's never impacted their own soul. They've never interacted with it. You could have a person like that, or you could have a person that just repented and believed and gave their life to Jesus Christ and they cracked open the Bible for the first time and they couldn't even tell you where the book of Romans is but when they start reading the scripture in front of them they bring it in and they contemplate it and they pray about it and they try to apply it to their life immediately. If I had to put somebody in ministry, I would take that second person every day of the week over the person that has all this knowledge but has never been applied to their heart. You see, there's a warning here for us, especially us who've been around this church thing for a while, to allow God's word and who he is to sink past the recesses of our mind, and go into the inner places of our heart. The goal always needs to be to be like Jesus. We don't learn the Bible to try to prove a point. We don't learn the Bible to try to argue. We don't learn the Bible so we can impress people with all of our Bible knowledge and look so religious. We learn the scriptures to be like Jesus. To take scripture and twist it for a personal means as a tactic that Satan uses all the time because he knows Scripture really, really well. And he did it in the Garden of Eden with Eve. He did it in the desert with Jesus. Here the religious people were saying, if you are really, really super spiritual, then this is what you do. If you are really moral superior, if you want to be like in the elite where people look and say, wow, look how spiritual that person is, this is what you do. And Jesus was saying, There's a new king that changes lives from the inside out. And it doesn't look like that. It's not all about the external. Jesus is totally into obedience. He's totally into us obeying God. But he does it by changing our heart. Jesus declares his ways of relating to God are better than following extra biblical practices and laws. And here's the deal. This is why he's saying his disciples aren't fasting. He's saying that his disciples don't fast to try to get God to move and bring his kingdom. Instead, they're celebrating that the kingdom of God is here because Jesus is among them. Now, Jesus is here. And in this new kingdom, this is what we see. We see forgiveness is available. We see sinners are becoming disciples. We see all of us are in need of spiritual healing and we are made well in Jesus. So what would be the right response to that kingdom? It's to celebrate. It's to celebrate. And that's the point that Jesus is bringing. You don't understand what's before you. Instead, the disciples were accused of inadequate devotion to God when in actuality they were right. They had the right response. Celebration that Jesus has come to earth, that God is now here, the gospel is taking root, and the kingdom of God is being established, and everything is changing in how a person relates to God. Religion 
is no longer following extra-biblical practices. Now it's following a person, and his name is Jesus, and he's the king. Scene number four, the king rules over all. He rules over all. Look at verses 23 to 28. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some of the heads of the grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The key point in this part, in this scene, is who gets to declare what's right and wrong? Who gets to decide what's right and wrong? The king rules over all. Who gets to have the final authority? The king rules over all. The change of lifestyle in the disciples challenges the old system once again. And the issue we see here is what work is acceptable to do on the Sabbath? What can you do on the Sabbath and what can't you do on the Sabbath? Who gets to decide that? Exodus 34.21 says harvesting is prohibited on the Sabbath. So the question is, is the disciples picking some of the heads of grain to eat harvesting? And again, the Pharisees made laws to protect the laws, and they became their religious traditions. And Jesus and his disciples did not violate the Torah, but they're violating these laws. And so Jesus brings up a lesson, hopefully, that could relate to them. And he goes back to David, who they would revere. In verse 25 to 28, he tells the story. And Jesus affirms that what David did was not right. However, that wasn't his point. He concludes the one who gets to decide these matters is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus himself. He's declaring through that story that the king rules over all, even how you apply the Old Testament law. Who gets to decide these matters? The Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus himself, the ruler, the judge, the new authority on earth. Jesus in this story is claiming an authority greater than David's authority. He's claiming an authority greater than the Pharisees' authority. Now it's Jesus' authority. Forgives sins, calls sinners, gives new ways to relate to God through following him. Not only is he a establishing new ways, now he's critiquing and correcting the old ways of thinking. The Pharisees had a system of what's right and what's to decide what's right and what's wrong, what's in and what's out, and Jesus saying, the system is done. Now I am the authority. The king rules over all. And what we see in the disciples' actions is they're covered under the authority of this king. The religious establishment judged and tried to correct. Jesus took the authority off the Pharisees and placed it upon himself. And he said, now I get to decide where people are in their relationship with God. The king rules over all. 
Does he rule in your life? Does he rule in your inner world? A pastor wrote this. He said, you and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom residing in our hearts. Imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table in your heart. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others are all gathered around this board table. The committee is arguing and debating and voting. They're constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. But the truth is that we're just divided. We're just unfocused. We're just hesitant. We're just not free. That kind of person can accept Jesus in one of two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee. Let him pull up a chair to the table. Let him have a vote. But then he just becomes one more confusing voice in the midst of them. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, this isn't working. This board is leaving me out of sorts, confused, not at peace. Let me ask you, what is the board doing in the midst of coronavirus in your soul? Is it pulling you apart Is it causing a lack of peace? One way to accept Jesus is to say to him, this board thing, my life is not working. Will you please come in and fire the whole committee? Will you do away with this committee, every last one of them? I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life. You see, what Jesus was establishing here in this scene where he's ruling over all, he's saying, there's no more board members. I am the one ruler for the people of God. I am the one ruler that will sit on the throne of your heart. And when we fire the board in our heart and we allow Jesus to sit on the throne, it creates within us inner peace, new life, and it's what it really means to follow him. There's one final scene. And this final scene in the movie takes all the four scenes before it and catapults it to this uh, climax of story that's absolutely incredible. I thought about when I first looked at this just preaching this last scene because it's the highlight. But unless you connect the previous four, this one lacks power when we see what's happening here. And I know I'm going a little longer than normal, and that's okay. And and maybe it's because I don't uh, see the impatient cues here in the seats of yawns and scratching of heads. And so that's probably one of the disadvantages of this situation. But I'm going to take advantage of it. Because you've got to see scene five. And you have to understand what's happening here. Scene five declares that the king is here. The king is here. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This is absolutely amazing. What an incredible picture we have in Scripture. Don't miss this. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. 
In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill it? But they were silent. The Pharisees were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. You see what's happening here? There's a Sabbath, and they're trying to trap Jesus. And what is more or what is better to do on a Sabbath? To heal somebody or plot to kill somebody? Do you see how the craziness of following all these extra rules to look so prideful, to look so arrogant, gets them to the place where they can't even see the reality of life? They can't even see the true basics of right and wrong? The king is here. This is a perfect conclusion to the movie today because in scene number five, there's no issues like the first four scenes. There wasn't this question and here's the issue and Jesus responds. Jesus models boldness, persistence, and dedication to God in the middle of all these other scenes. They were questioning him. They brought him questions. Well, why, do they, why aren't they fasting? Why can they pick that grain? How come they're not doing this? Who are you to forgive sins? They're asking all these questions to build this case. I love how it says here in verse 4, they were silent. They just sat there watching him. And Jesus takes advantage of the silence. See, the craziness is this. This was the Sabbath, and Jesus does a good work on the Sabbath, healing this man's hand and restoring not just his hand, but his whole life, as we're going to see in a second. And his opponents, the Pharisees, do an evil work. They plot to try to kill Jesus. Who is truly honoring the Sabbath? Apparently, healing somebody is not allowed. However, plotting to kill somebody, that's okay. This is insane what the religious leaders were up to. And they thought they were so right. You see the warning in this for us? You can be theologically accurate and have all the right answers and miss the whole point. Jesus is after the heart. Jesus is after a way of life that reflects God. It shows us how important humility and dependence upon God and dependence upon living in a community of believers who we can live among, who could check our hearts, who can lovingly come in truth and say, you know, you may think you're right right now, but you don't know how you're coming off. You're destroying people with your rightness and you're missing the whole point. See, there's a following Jesus is about following a person. It's about following a way. It's not just about following the rules and trying to get them right. And when you're on that second track, it can actually pollute your thinking. When you lose sight of Jesus and just want to be right, 
solely that you can show everybody you're right, you better be careful. Jesus restores this man in an amazing way because Leviticus 21, verses 16 to 24, points out that this man was prohibited from going in and worshiping because his hand was shriveled. He wasn't allowed to enter the temple to worship. You see, Jesus' healing permits him now to go and worship God. What a picture that is for us. When Jesus comes and heals us of our sin and brokenness, it empowers us to worship him. Jesus makes people whole in several ways, not just physically, but he makes people whole psychologically. He makes people whole socially. He makes people whole culturally. And above all, he makes people whole in the inner part of the world where their sins are forgiven and grace wipes them out and empowers them to live a holy life. He cures so much more than the physical. Jesus' kingdom sets things right, truly right. Now look at how this plays out, the first few verses. This man did not ask for healing. The man didn't even open his mouth. He was probably hoping he could just sit there and watch this person, Jesus, and let it all go by and then disappear. He is simply the patient before the true physician. And Jesus is the one who calls him out. He says, come to the center. In front of everyone, Jesus forces the issue. Jesus says, in all the other scenes, Pharisees and scribes, you tried to trap me, you tried to oppose me, you constantly challenged me in all those four other scenes. In scene five, I'm done with this. In scene five, I'm done with the challenges. Let me show you this. And what Jesus does is he sets up a carefully staged theater to put the power of God on display. He sets up the perfectly staged theater to put the power of God on display. Jesus is not the least intimidated. He continues the mission the Father gave him to establish this kingdom in this world. Physical healing in their world was a big deal. When they saw somebody healed physically, that meant power. That meant authority. That meant you follow that guy. Jesus' dedication to the mission of his father was more important than his personal safety. And I also love the fact that Jesus' emotions are on display here in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, after looking around at them with anger. Jesus was angry. He was angry against those who kept trying to trap him in in that they were more concerned about keeping this man in bondage than they were about getting their own opinion and viewpoint highlighted. Jesus was angry at their lack of mercy. He was angry at their lack of compassion. And Jesus feels, he feels the injustice of this situation. We tend to picture Jesus as this guy who's always nice and he just does all the right things. And when we kind of get angry against things in this world, people say, well, you're not being like Jesus because Jesus wouldn't be like that. He'd be all nice and he'd be all polite and he would be, and he did it right all the time. But Jesus also got angry at the things that anger God. 
Jesus grieved at the hardness of their heart. And what we see in that is the hardness of the Pharisees' heart was worse than the shriveled up hand in this man. You see, this final scene is marked by Jesus' compassion and sorrow as well as his anger at injustice. Deceived people cannot stop the kingdom of God. Jesus keeps moving. Jesus heals this man without holding back. In spite of his anger and grief, in spite of the huge opposition, in spite of the risk of his personal safety, Jesus never shrinks back from bringing the mission of God to bring rule over the earth, to bring love that we could never imagine, to bring the reign of God. So that's the movie. Scene one, the king is God. Scene two, the king makes sinful hearts clean. Scene three, the king changes lives. Scene four, the king rules over all. And the climax, the last part of this scene is scene number five, the king is here. Let me ask you this. How do you respond to such a king? How do you respond to this king? Are there things in your life that oppose God in this king? Are there things in your life that oppose this king's rule and authority? Is it your own plan, your own view, your own way of going about things? Recently it became known there was a college professor at a very, very well-known evangelical Christian college And every year, the professors have to look at the statement of faith, what this college believes, the doctrine of this college, and they have to sign off and say, yes, I believe this. And this professor did not believe one of the things in that statement. In fact, he believed something really, really the opposite. And he looked at it, and he signed it anyway. And they said, how can you do that when you've taught this, this, this? And he said, well, I agree with the way that I interpret that statement of faith. This is something that's becoming common in the Christian world, that we can take our own interpretation and spin the Bible and spin the creeds and the things that we believe however we want in order to fit our own way of life. See, that's a life that is not subjected to the authority of Jesus Christ. That's a life that's running rogue from the king. Are there things in our lives that are like that? Are there things in our lives that run rogue? You see, here's the deal. People are either drawn to Jesus in their need or they're repelled from him in their pride. They're either either drawn to Jesus in their need, Jesus, I need you, or they're repelled from him in their pride. How much do we resist what God wants to do in our life? Because we're clinging on to something and trying to make it a God. What we started with is this. What C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the rising of the sun. I believe it not because I can see it, but when I see it, I can see everything else. In your heart, has Jesus become the king that gives light to everything else? Has he become the lens that you view everything in the world through? That everything in your life is subject to this king? 
There may be so many other things that are giving light to the world that you view. Your upbringing, your preferences, your playlist, your news feed. What gives the vision for your life? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's inviting us to submit all those other things to his kingship and his lordship. And the opportunity I believe God is giving us in this day and age when this coronavirus pandemic is is taking over is are we going to be panicked in anxiety and let that be what rules us? Or are we even going to take that and subject it to the king who rules over all and invite him to go deeper in our lives And help us submit deeper to him so that true worship and honor can happen. I want to give you a moment now just to think about this. What's going on in your heart? Do you surrender to this king? Think that through and I'm going to pray for us and close. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are king and you are here and that you rule over all. And God, we present to you our hearts right now. And if there's anything in us that's stiffing, arming your rule and your reign in our life, if there's anything in in us that is more exalted than the rule and reign of you and your father, Would you please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring it to our minds and convict us that we could repent and be free. That we as Christian believers and people who desire to follow you can live under the authority and the rule and the reign of you because that is where life becomes life. So God, I ask that you would do this work within us in this time, in this place. Reframe our mind, whatever and wherever we find ourselves in this moment of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.